All right, turn in your Bible with me to Revelation chapter 16, and I'll read the, the whole thing. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. And they were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God, who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its waters were dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are de demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for a battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake, such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about a hundred pounds each, fell from heaven on the people. And they cursed God for the plague of the hail, because the plague was so severe. All right, so Revelation chapter 16. Uh, as we start, I do want to take a look at, at a little bit further back in Revelation, just as a, a reminder here um, as we open up this. Uh, I, I just want to read a little bit of Revelation chapter 8 and make a quick connection. This is Revelation chapter 8, beginning in verse 1 here. It says, When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. Then I saw the angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. Okay, so hear that, the golden censer. And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire and threw it on the earth, and there were peals and thunder and lightning and earthquake. So we hear that in Revelation 8, as we see this, this angel holding a censer, a golden censer that is filled with the prayers of the saints. Uh, and when we were in that, we said, okay, so, so you know, what's the result? The, the prayers of the saints are the question how long, O oh Lord? How long? How long will you wait? When will we see justice? How long will the, the righteous be killed and the unrighteous will uh, rule? How long? How long? How long? And we see the answer there, but we also see it here, I believe, as we see 
these seven bowls full of the wrath of God. The, the, the golden censer full of the prayers lifts up to heaven and is answered with the bowls full of the wrath of God. Uh, there's a, a connection that's there, definitely. So this chapter contains, uh, chapter 16 contains one of the uh, more popular images in the entire book of, uh, of Revelation. Uh, this image of that one little word of Armageddon. You get it, the, the final battle, uh, the battle of Armageddon there. And we'll get to that. We'll talk about it. There, there is such a battle coming. Uh, but I, I don't think it has much to do with uh, a valley near Jerusalem uh, or uh, uh, Russia and China and their armies uh, coming into the battle to fight against Jerusalem or anything like that. Okay, so we'll get there. We'll get there. But uh, John's reference, I hope it'll be clear as we're coming through here to see. Okay, so we're, we're getting into this final part of the book. Chapter 15 was a connecting point between uh, the section of chapters 12 to 14 that were this interlude talking about the woman and the dragon and the beast and the false prophet uh, and how they pursued the church. And 15 leads us into this uh, final series of judgments that we see. Uh, we had the seals first and we had the trumpets and now we have the bowls. Um, and as we've mentioned before, I believe that these are all uh, pictures of the same thing. This is, uh, imagine a movie in your mind, and you've got the establishing shot. Of course, I'm using a, a technical term there. Anytime you see a, uh, a TV show and it like opens up and you've got a picture of the city to let you know we're in New York or we're in you know, Chicago or wherever we are, that's an establishing shot. It's giving you an idea of oh, a warehouse late at night. You're outside and you see it, okay? So you get an establishing. I see that as early on in the book when you see the seals. That's the establishing shot. And then you jump a little bit closer to see what's going on there and that's where you get into the trumpets. But then we're here at our, our final moments and our last thing and now it's time for the close-up. Uh, we're zooming in even closer and we're going to see uh, these bowls as they are poured out and we're going to get the, the close-up uh, of not just a story that it goes throughout church history, because uh, I believe it does. I think as we saw the seals and as we saw the trumpet stretch from the uh, first coming of Christ to the second coming of Christ, I think this one does as well, but it is really focusing on the intensity of it because we've gotten more and more intense as we've gone on. You see the, the numbers involved in the seals were about a third. Uh, the ones involved with the trumpet were like half, or excuse me, a quarter and then a third, and now we're at everything. The whole thing is done, and, and by the end of this, uh, nothing will be left untouched. This will be the finish uh, as we see it. So let's look at it here. Um, Throughout this section as well, I want you to keep your mind on uh, the trumpets that we've already seen. We're going to make reference back to them, so kind of keep your finger there on uh, Revelation chapter 8. Uh, so we can flip back to Revelation chapter 8, see some comparisons there. Uh, and also keep your mind to uh, the, the Ten Commandments movie if you want to. <laughs> you know, Think of the judgments that came upon, uh, that came upon Egypt there during the Exodus. Uh, and we're going to see some very uh, strong comparisons there as well. Okay? So, let's get into it. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. Uh, this loud voice from the temple, uh, it is God himself. This is God the Father. And I say that because just the verse before says, The sanctuary is filled with smoke from the glory of God, and no one could enter the sanctuary. So the only one there, and there's no four you know, living creatures, there's no anybody else besides God himself here inside the temple. And his voice is coming out saying, go and do this. The reason why I say that is I, I hear a pushback from our uh, more touchy-feely culture today that says, well, this couldn't possibly be God's will that all of these, this destruction and death happened. But yes, yes it is. This is God's plan, God's decree, God's will that this come about. Okay, so And he's the one that brings it into action. No one else but him. All right, verse 2. 
So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth. Okay, first time, let's flip back to chapter 8 and see the first trumpet. Where was the first trumpet affected? What, what did it affect? And verse 7 of chapter 8 says the angel blew his trumpet and there was followed hail and fire mixed with blood and these were thrown upon the earth. Okay, so the earth. The, a third of the earth was burned up, a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. Okay, so we see that there's a parallel here. And we're going to see this in every single one of these judgments without fail. That the scope uh, is larger. It's going to hit a larger scope. But the realm that each of the judgments are over will be the same. Uh, so we see that there's some parallelism with what's going on in the trumpet judgments, but there's also a, a deepening of the scope, an a intensification of the, the fury that's here. Okay, uh, So as we go here, um, sorry, I, I passed by myself in the notes. I just kept going and I didn't even <laughs> consult my notes here. Uh, so as we're there, <laughs> make sure I didn't miss anything. So, as we see that, it's on the earth. And harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. Okay, so notice who this is affecting. Okay, it's on the earth, but it is on those who have taken the mark of the beast. Those who have accepted this mark, who, who have received the mark on their hands or on their, on their forehead. Um, this will happen to those unbelieving inhabitants of the earth here. Uh, and, and that, I think, is a, an, an evidence that this is occurring and the church is still present. Because if it wasn't, then there would be no reason for us to think otherwise. There would be no reason for this to even be mentioned, right? If the church wasn't there, and if there's no believers present, then it would just say it fell on all the inhabitants of the earth. Um, but since the church is still present during this time, that gives a, a, a bit of trouble for those uh, you know, premillennialists who would say that you know, we're pulled out before the second coming. And if we believe that this is the revealing the second coming as, as we get to the end, it again causes a little bit of issue there for that premillennial view, uh, which is one of the reasons why I tend to lean towards uh, an amillennial view that says that this is the, the entire scope, the, the thousand years, the millennial time is what we're in right now. And so that brings no issue that Christ will, will return at the end of the millennium uh, and we will see evil and good both rising at the same time as we have uh, this final judgment here at the end. Uh, but it happens to those who had borne the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. It's going to fall upon them. And we see these painful boils and sores that they have. Uh, this is just like the sixth plague uh, that was upon Egypt that we see in Exodus chapter 9. Um, and the, the, one of the interesting things about the, the sixth plague, again, it is only for those who are not the people of God. Okay? The, those boils didn't fall upon the Israelites in Exodus. Uh, they fell upon just the Egyptians that were there. So same kind of uh, picture there. Uh, the, the point being that God seals his people. God protects his people, his 144,000 that we see mentioned throughout this time uh, that are juxtap juxtaposed against those who have taken the seal of the beast. Uh, if you get the mark of the beast, you're not one of the 144,000. If you have the hundred, if you have the seal of the Holy Spirit, you're one of the 144,000. You don't take the mark of the beast. These are are two different groups. Okay, and so God protects His people, holds them back from any kind of of judgment here. Okay, any questions, thoughts on the first bowl being poured out? I think it's interesting that we see that this mark of the beast, which uh, was previously meant to separate the beast's people out and be a persecution against the church, has turned into a persecution against them. Uh, that's the very thing that marks them for judgment uh, in the end. It identifies them as objects of God's wrath. 
so those bearing the, the number of man, 666, will, will suffer wrath beyond, beyond measure here. Okay, so second, second, we see more biblical images here as we get on to the second bowl. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea. And it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. We can flip back to Revelation chapter 8 and compare here. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. Okay, Same realm that we see affected here, thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. Even the same effect here, just intensified. Not just a third, but all of it is blood. Uh, not just a third of the living creatures dying, not just a third of the ships being destroyed, but everything uh, that is in the sea is dead at this point. Okay, so this is a, uh, a look back to Exodus. Go back to Exodus, and this is number one, right? This is the first plague. This is the turning of the, the Nile, the, the water there, and we're going to see it again in the third uh, as well, kind of multiplied and, and duplicated here. Uh, the Nile being turned into blood will get uh, duplicated on this. Um, nothing's going to survive this. And, and I find it so interesting here that it, it affects the sea and, and it causes such issues here. So that when we get into Revelation chapter 21, just flip over there real fast. And, and I know you've heard this before. But in Revelation 21, we hear, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And the sea was no more. And, I, and of course, I've heard uh, fishermen hear this, and they're like, well, there must be some big lakes, because I know I'm going to be fishing in heaven. <laughs> and that's not the point. The point is not saying there won't be any water, there won't be any, any ocean there. The point is saying, okay, what is the sea? What did the sea represent for John? What did the sea represent in this time? It represented a place of mystery, a place of destruction. Uh, you know, if, if you sailed a ship out into the, to the sea and you came across a, a bad storm, that ship sank and you got nothing back. It was, it was the deep. It was destroyed at that point. Um, this was also the place where the, uh, the dragon had risen from. He had come up from the sea and risen out of this. And so this was seen as the abode of the dragon. And in chapter 21, it's gone. It's no more. He's no longer present. There's no more separation. I've always thought of it that way for John. He's on an island. He's writing from Patmos. And what does the sea represent for him? It's separation from his family and his friends and his, his fellow Christians. And he says there's going to be no more separation. There's no more sea. We're going to be together. We're going to be uh, with one another. And Satan's not present. There's no evil. Everything is made perfect. So just see that brought full circle as we come closer. All right, number three. Number three. The third angel poured out his bowl in, uh, excuse me, the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. Okay, so we get this again. Uh, the third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. That bitterness that was there, the people died because the water had been made bitter. Again, intensification. Same realm, a little bit stronger, much stronger, in fact, uh, all the way stronger, being poured out as we get to this. And the, the most interesting thing about this one uh, is the statement the statement of the angel here, uh, the angel that's in charge of the waters or the angel of the waters as he uh, speaks of God's justice here. Um, yeah, he, he says, just you are, just. God, you're, you're just. You, you aren't being uh, overly dramatic about this. You know, really, God, does, does all the water need to be affected here? Does, do all the people need? Come on, God, don't you think you're being a little bit harsh? No, no. The, the answer rings out from heaven. You're just. This is justice. This is goodness here. Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. And then we see this divine retribution that comes about here. Uh, we see these people who were bloodthirsty, thirsty for the blood of the prophets, will now drink that blood. 
they were bloodthirsty and now they will quench their thirst on that. It's what they deserve, as he says. They've shed the blood of saints and of prophets and you have given them blood to drink. And then the, the altar, all of the, the living creatures, those that are there around the throne, speak out the same thing. Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, just and true are your judgments. Uh, all of heaven comes to, to proclaim the goodness and justice and holiness of God here. Uh, that he has not gone overboard in this, but he is faithful. Uh, this reminds me of... of uh, Deuteronomy chapter 32. Flip back there. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 4. And this is just before they are going to cross over uh, the Jordan River and go into Jericho here. And this is what Moses says. This is part of his song as he is speaking to the people. And, and remind me, does Moses get to go in to the promised land? No. Moses, who himself had failed and had been told by God, you're not going to enter because of this, uh, he's going to speak of God's justice. Justice. And he says it here in, in uh, chapter 32, verse 4. He says, The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. Even, even those of us who undergo God's judgment in the end should bow our knee and say, you are just in this. I'm, I'm not the one that's in the right and you're in the wrong. I must bow before you, the God of justice and holiness. Okay, that's our, our position. Um, that was part of the message that the friends of Job would say, right? You Because know, Job was kind of standing up saying, I didn't do anything wrong. I'm upright. And I, and I don't think his friends were wrong to come against him and say, Job, you better watch it. You're being a little bit strong in your language here. Uh, God is just. You are not. Uh, now, they would go a little too far and be like, it must have been some sin that you committed and did this. But Job knew the answer. He, he, he knew, should we accept you know, good from God and not evil also? You know, Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked I shall return you know, blessed be the name of the Lord. Uh, that idea is there throughout, that even when we endure hardships and trials, we recognize that God is just and that he brings only exactly what he has prepared and planned for us, for our good and for his glory. So we see that here uh, in this song or, or this statement from the angel here. All right, number four. Number four. According to Revelation uh, chapter 8, verse 12, okay, we'll go back to it. Chapter 8, verse 12, the fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened. Okay, so we're going to see a, a different change here, right? The, the sun was affected in the trumpets, but it resulted in darkness. Here, it's going to result in a different way. And it's going to go the other way. Fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. Okay, so we get a, an intensification of the heat, uh, whether you want to call this a solar flare or whatever it might be. Uh, we have uh, the people being scorched by this fierce heat, and they curse the name of God and, and, and hear that. You know, previously, we haven't seen the response of the people. This is like... Uh, Again, like the boils that you might see in um, in Exodus, uh, you're seeing the uh, fire come down uh, in form there in Exodus. That was part of that. You had kind of the hail fire that happened. But in here, we get the first response from the people that they are are not repenting. Okay, instead, it says they were scorched by the fierce heat and they cursed the name of God who had the power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. So for those who might say, well, if God would just show up and do something big, you know, we'd believe. 
We'd believe. We'd, we'd, we would trust him if he would just show up and he'd, he'd put a big sign up in the heaven and say, I'm here, I'm real, I'm God. Well, here's their sign that he's real. Do you think the church is removed somewhere between the second and fourth? I, I tend to believe that the church is in all of this. Okay, because there's no I, distinction in yeah, this one. I think the church is, is here through all of this. I, I personally do. Um, but again, the church is, is held back. They are protected. And this is a, um, a, a symbolic picture. Okay, This is not, all the people are dead now, and here, here they're getting crushed with hail. This is a, a symbolic picture the same way. that I, I don't literally believe that the, the, the uh, whole ocean has been turned into actual blood here. This is a metaphor. This is a picture of God's justice coming, saying that those who were made, to, those who shed the blood of others will be forced to drink the, the bitterness and the blood of, the, of those that they shed, that God's wrath will be revealed on them uh, fully and totally. Not just a third, not just a little bit, but all the way. I believe, I mean, God, there nowhere in the Bible does God remove his people through it. He puts them through it. So this is also an image of showing the believers and those who believe the, the justice of God, his wrath on those who are evil and yeah. bad, for them to witness and say kind of full circle of, you know, the whole counsel of God is now here. Yeah, if uh, if we do think that it has that the church has been taken out at this point, um, it would come back to the end of chapter fourteen, the harvest of the earth there. But when you look at the harvest of the earth, you, you see that in chapter fourteen, you see that that's that's the end, that's all of it. You've got the complete harvesting of everyone, of good and evil, both being taken care of, and then. Who are these people that are being taken care of here? It, it, if you take the whole thing from start to finish as one story, you, you, it makes no sense. It doesn't make any sense. You, you can't go, okay, everybody is reaped and all, all is done and they're taken outside and trodden outside the city. Oh, and then now everybody's going to get crushed with you know, giant hail. Well, who? Who's going to get crushed? They were all just trampled in the wine press. It's all figurative. This is a... This is apocalyptic literature, okay? So this is John writing these visions that he's seeing that are larger than life. This is a, a massive picture, and they all relate back uh, to prophecies that come much, much earlier, much, much earlier, all the way back in uh, Isaiah and Zechariah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah and others. Yes, sir? Could we not see this comparison, though, between when Elijah was in the drought, he was taking care of himself? Yeah. Yeah, uh, and, and I, I think it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Um, there was a reason why I put on the, the O Church Arise uh, song, uh, because I, I think when we get down here to, to Armageddon, we're going to see this is the final push of the uh, beast and the false prophet and everyone against the church, uh, against the people of God. And I'll get there. I'll get there. But yeah, I think it's a, it's a good point that we're at this point uh, to say, yeah, the, the, the people are there. Uh, the church is still part of this um, in, in this time and that God is faithful. God is faithful to his people uh, and he will protect them uh, if it be his will. <laughs> so does the marriage the lamb take it's coming. It's coming in chapter 21. New heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem, marriage supper of the Lamb. We get, we get that. That's our, our final kind of crescendo as it all takes place in the end. And that's one picture that we see the marriage supper of the Lamb in this cycle uh, as we get here into the seventh bowl. Uh, there's just no mention of it. Okay, It's, it's there in the final bit of chapter 16 uh, where it says, you know, great hailstones fell and they cursed God. Well, what's happening when they're cursing God? When the end is taking place and the wicked are cursing God, the faithful are praising God and being joined to him in a, in a supper. And there's, you know, wealth overflowing. It is, it's this picture back and forth. I, I, I've explained it before that as we go through Revelation, it's as if John is being shown different, different parts of these judgments and different images as kind of zooming in on certain effects. The same way that in chapter 17 and 18, he's going to zoom in particularly on the destruction of Babylon. Okay? And he's going to you know, talk about who Babylon is, the, the, this, this you know, uh, pro great prostitute that's there, and how it's going to be taken out. 
we, we see that happen right here in the end of chapter 16, that, that it's all taken care of. Babylon's destroyed. It's, it's done. But then he's going to go, well, hold on. Let me, let me rewind the tape a little bit and zoom in even closer so that you can see this very carefully, uh, that God will uh, vindicate his justice in all things. Okay, so he's going to do that. So in this chapter, we don't see the heavenly side of things outside of the very first verse there saying that God is decreeing this to happen. Uh, but I think in the meantime, you know, as uh, you know, the, the Bible talks about you know, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And uh, it, that you, there is appointed to man once to die and then the what? Judgment. Okay, that, that we're not, we don't die and then be held for something. We die and we are present at the judgment. Okay, so if you were to die tonight, you go to the judgment. Okay, you, you are judged at that point. One or the other. Uh, and, and there's no delay in the marriage supper of the Lamb. There's no delay in the enjoyment of heaven. I don't believe. I don't believe. I think if I was to die tonight, that I'm going to the marriage supper of the Lamb. I feast with my father and my, my brother in heaven with all the saints who have gone before, and we are there celebrating. And that's why this, this whole book is a picture of the time from the first cry, it is finished, to the final cry that we're getting to here in verse 17, it is done. It is finished on the cross, it is done, cries out God when his final wrath is revealed. Okay, so this is the, the whole picture, and there's no specific distinction, and oh, this is, this is here. Yes, I do think there will be a final push of evil and a, and a final um, intensification of, of judgment, uh, but it's not something that I can look at the newspaper and go, oh, Trump did this, that must be it, or you know, Biden comes off, Biden becomes president, that's, it's over, that's the beast right there. I'm not identifying these people that way. It's been the same throughout history, whether it's Nero or Stalin or whoever it might be, you know, Kim Jong-il or you know, uh, Che Guevara or whoever, all of these evil world leaders who set themselves up against the name of Christ are anti-Christ, and they will all come to their just end here in this chapter. All right, so the fourth is there. Uh, they, uh, they curse the name of God, and who is cursing? It is those who uh, have been, uh, you know, have the mark of the beast, have worshipped its image. Uh, that's who is being you know, scorched in this part, because God protects his people. In verse 10, the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom was plunged into darkness. Now, this is the one that some people kind of go, well, hold on, this doesn't match, does it? Because we've got to get to the fifth angel here. So see in chapter 9, it says, The fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit, the throne of the beast, the bottomless pit. That's his dwelling, that's his abode. Okay? Uh, and from this pit came out all of this darkness. The air was darkness with the smoke from the shaft and everything here. Uh, so the Lord of darkness, the, the throne of darkness, is here in chapter 16 going to be completely shrouded in darkness. Uh, uh, all the light has gone away. Uh, and this reflects back to, you know, in Exodus, you've got the plague of darkness. And, and it even says in, in Exodus that it was a darkness that could be felt. Like... Ever, I don't think we've ever experienced darkness quite like that, even if you're like Rob and you're afraid of the dark. <laughs> darkness so dark that it can be felt. It's oppressive. It is, it's cutting. That's a darkness that I'm scared of. Uh, and, and that's what Jesus talks about when he speaks of those who are on the outside. They're on the outside looking in. Uh, they're not part of the kingdom. They're not in, in heaven. They are in outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. And we see that even here uh, in uh, verse 10. It says, uh, the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and its kingdom was plunged into darkness and people gnawed their tongues in anguish. Okay, there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. They're gnawing on their own tongues here 
in such pain and anguish. Okay, the curse, uh, they cursed God uh, of heaven for their pain and for their sores. Okay, so it reminds us that these sores had happened as well. Uh, all of this is happening to the same people, and they did not repent of their deeds. Again, this is just like in Exodus where you have uh, Pharaoh who is experiencing these, and we hear, and he hardened his heart, and Pharaoh hardened his heart. And God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And it gets deeper and deeper and deeper until it's just a crusty ball uh, that is unable to see God for anything. Uh, but in the meantime, God's glory is on display uh, in his power and in his justice. Number 12. Uh, this is where it gets interesting. This is where it gets really interesting. The sixth angel pours out his bowl on the great river Euphrates. Okay, so... A uh, little geography lesson: The Tigris and the Euphrates both come out of the per go flow into the Persian Gulf, uh, and this was the uh, far eastern border of the Roman Empire in John's day. And this was also the place traditionally uh, of the border of Israel, and this is where Israel's enemies were. You had Babylon and Assyria that are both right here on the Tigris and the Euphrates. But the interesting thing is. Um, what we see come next. It says, The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up. You remember some water being dried up at all in Exodus? There was a, a great deliverance, right? When, when they went across the Red Sea, and they were brought to safety in this. Okay, well, I'm going to make a little comparison there. Uh, again, the river Euphrates is going to be interesting for uh, the people of Israel while they're in exile. Okay, they're in exile in Assyria and Babylon uh, during the time of the prophets. Uh, most of the prophets are going to be writing during that time or, or predicting what's happening there. Um, but how did they get out of exile? How did they get out of exile? Anybody remember who became the ruler over Assyria and Babylon and led them to freedom? It was Cyrus the Great of Persia. And Persia is on the other side of the Euphrates. Okay, you've got Assyrian Babylon there in the Fertile Crescent, right there along the Tigris and the Euphrates. But on the other side, what's modern-day Iran and uh, Afghanistan, that is where Persia was. Uh, and Persia came in and overtook both Assyria and Babylon. And tradition tells us uh, that Cyrus the Great did it by diverting the flow of the river Euphrates. That he, defer he diverted the flow, he pretty much dammed up the river so that his armies could cross and go right into Babylon uh, and take down Babylon uh, in that day. And that allowed the people of Israel to go into Persian hands and then uh, Cyrus would say, go home, go home, go back, build your temple. And we see Nehemiah and everyone return and start building the temple. So the people of Israel were freed through the stopping of a river in Exodus and through specifically the drying up of the Euphrates in the exile period. Uh, so this is, again, a picture of God's people being brought into safety, but not through the way that we would often think. I don't think that the people in exile thought it was going to be a good thing when the Persians came in and took over, right? The Persians were like, oh, great, now we got another army. They're just going to kill us. They don't even know who we are. But God used this army from the north, this other army, who would come in and would uh, bring them to safety and send them home. So we see it here. Dried up. Uh, the water there to prepare the way for the kings from the east. Now, if you read Hal Lindsey and, and others like this, they will say, oh, well, this is Russia and China. The Red China is going to lead everything. It's going to be Japan, all the armies from the east. They're all going to come and, and do this. Well, who? why are they coming? Why are they coming? Well, we see here why they're coming. They're not coming to battle against Jerusalem or anything here. We see none of that in this. Um, we don't see any kind of battle except for a battle between God, <laughs> between God and all of the kingdoms of the earth. And so these people are coming to prepare for battle at this place. Okay, so let's keep reading. And I saw, uh, uh, prepare the way for the kings of the east. And this is like a little parenthesis here. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and the mouth of the beast and the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. 
Why frogs? I have no idea. <laughs> I don't know why frogs. The only thing I can think of is in Exodus, the second plague was the plague of the frogs. And what were the, um, uh, the, the magicians able to do? They were able to replicate that. That was one of the ones that they could say, yeah, here, here's, here's some frogs. We can do that too. <laughs> See, we're as good as you are. Uh, and, and it's that idea, the three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are demonic spirits performing signs. Okay, so that, that's the only connection that I can get. This is only one of like three times that the word frogs is used in all the Bible. And the other one, <laughs> the other one of them is back in Exodus talking about these frogs. Okay, so uh, if, if we need a connection there, I think we've got it. Um, but they perform signs, and what do those signs try to get the kings of the earth to do? Kings of the whole world. They go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. The great day of God. This is it. This is the final battle. This is the day of the Lord, the day of judgment, the day of wrath. And before we get to any kind of result... We see Jesus give us a little parenthesis, and this is the speaking to the church, and this is the other reason I believe the church is here, and the church is present in this, because otherwise, why is Jesus talking to the church and telling them to hold on and wait? Okay, he speaks and says, behold, I'm coming like a thief. Not, I have come already, I, I already grabbed you, but I am coming like a thief, not saying that he's going to steal anything, but that he's going to be unexpected. Uh, even in this time, even in a time when all of the armies are gathering, people are still going, when's he going to come back? Oh, what's, what's happening here? They're denying that he's ever going to return, and they're longing for it. Um, but there are going to be some that are caught unawares, even in the last days. Even in the last days. He's, Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake. Remember those ten virgins, the ones who who had their preparations, stayed awake for everything, made all the preparations, they were ready, and they were greeted uh, by their king. So blessed is one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, so that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. I think this will become more uh, thrown into, into stark relief when we get into uh, the talking about the, the whore of Babylon as we get into chapter 17 and 18. Uh, because she is exposed. And I think this is saying, uh, blessed is the one who's not found in bed with Babylon when I come back. Be ready. Be prepared. Uh, keep your garments on so that you may not go about naked. This is also probably a little picture of the uh, time of the Passover. Remember how they ate the Passover meal? They ate it fully clothed with their shoes on, staff in hand, because it was time to go. Uh, God said... Prepare the meal and eat it standing up. Don't even sit down, but just, just enjoy it because as soon as you finish eating, we're getting out of here. I'm going to take you out and bring you in. So that preparation and that being ready. Okay? But Jesus is speaking to his people, his church right here, in the midst of this, right before this final battle. Verse 16. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Okay, Armageddon. Now, in Hebrew, give you a little Hebrew lesson. Um, you may have heard, who, who's heard that this is a uh, place just outside of Jerusalem that's a, a valley called Megiddo? Okay, I have two. I have two. That's a potential. That's a potential. But it is a plain, it's not a mountain. Okay, and that's Megiddo. The word har, H A R, in Hebrew is mountain. Okay? So this is literally, in Hebrew, it's called Har, or Mount Megiddon, Megiddo, Har Megiddo, okay? Uh, so when you see this, it doesn't make much sense that it would be a plain called Megiddo when it says it's Mount Megiddo. Okay, so let's go over to, um, I gotta get there, I flipped my thing. All right, let's go over to Zechariah chapter 14 real fast. Zechariah. Get there to the beginning of the New Testament and then turn back a page. Zechariah chapter 14. Now hear this. This is uh, starting in, in verse 2. 
or we'll start in verse 1 of, of chapter 14. This is the coming of the day of the Lord. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. Where is it? Against Jerusalem to battle. Not Megiddo, but, but Jerusalem here. Okay, And the city shall be taken, and the houses plundered, and the women raped. Half of the city shall go out into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight. Yahweh will go out and fight against those nations. And when he fights on a day of battle, on that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives. Not Mountain of Megiddo or whatever. Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from the east to the west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. And you shall flee to the valley of my mountains there. Uh, so God's preparing a place through this battle. He, he says, I'm going to stand on the mountain. I'm going to split this mountain open, and you are going to come in to this rich valley that I've prepared for you uh, in this battle. I'm going to fight on your behalf. So we see this here. I personally think that this is, is saying... It would better be translated, uh, and they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Mount Megiddo. Well, what is Megiddo? What is Megiddo? Well, if you take that G, that G in Hebrew, and you turn it into an, an ayin, which is like a Y, it's another way to, to read it, um, you get another word, you get a, another word that we see in Isaiah chapter 14. Okay, go to Isaiah 14 real fast. I'm trying to make this connection here. Uh, and we can see it. Isaiah chapter 14. <laughs> Starting in verse 12. It says, How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, O son of dawn! How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low! You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the, what? On the mount of assembly. On the mount of assembly. If we switch out that one letter in the word Megiddo, we get, it's, it's Moed, Moed. Okay, there's one, one letter that's changed there. Remember in Hebrew, there's no vowels. It's all just consonants. Um, so the vowels are a little tricky there. But it says that I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. It says this is the judgment against Satan, the judgment against all of the forces of evil here. But it says that he wants to, to sit on the mount of assembly. I think that's what we're talking about here, is that uh, in they're assembled at the place that in Hebrew is the Mount of Assembly. And who's the assembly? We are. The Mount of the Gathering. We are the gathered ones. We are the assembly. This could also be translated Mount Zion. Okay, these are the people. Okay, they are all encompassed around the, the people of God. They are assembled against God's people. This is the final push. This is the, the last Stand when God's people are going, Lord, we're trusting you because we're about to all die. Like, this is it. We, we are over. There's no way we can stand against this without you. And then what happens? We get the seventh bowl that happens here. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out from the temple and the throne saying, It's done. It's done. Same exact phrase that we get from Jesus on the cross, tetelestai, same verb, it's finished, it's done, okay? And there were flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder and a great earthquake. Uh, I could go into all of this, and I will next week, but just hear this, that I, I, I want us to look really quick, and I'll finish with this. I'll finish with this. This is, this is it, I promise. And we'll, be, we'll go eat some food. <laughs> Go over to Hebrews chapter 12. We just were in this fairly recently. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 26. Did you say Hebrews 12, 26? Yep, Hebrews 12, 26. It says, At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. 
This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. This earthquake comes, and it's a great earthquake. The city split into three parts. The city of the nations fell, and God remembered Babylon the great, and he's going to take care of them, and he's going to show us that in detail, great detail in chapter 17 and 18. But in this time, we have a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and we are part of God's kingdom, and he is going to bring his people in to this kingdom, into safety in the midst of his you know, fighting there on our behalf. That's a, a good picture that we see there. Oh, all right, we'll, we'll jump back into that last little section and go into chapter 17 next week. All right. Any thoughts, questions before we pray and close? Oh, I have a question. Yes. So what if you're saved? You're saved. Could you be saved and have a doubt that you're saved? Of course, of course. Okay. I, I, think, I think that's... If, if you didn't have any kind of doubt... Um, I would say that you're, you might be uh, hoping in yourself. Like if, 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 I, if I have all the things you know, knocked out and I'm, I'm totally fine, I've got no doubts, then I'm putting my hope in something that can be seen. But faith is about hoping in what we cannot see. Uh, and so things that can't be seen, we tend to kind of go, are you there? Are you not? We see it in, uh, you know, all through uh, the Psalms. We see... God's people trusting in what they can't see, and that is a, an act of faith. And yeah, there's yeah, there's going to be times that we go, is it real? Is it there? But it's coming back over and over again to say, though I can't see, though I, I don't see with my eyes, I feel with my heart, I see you with my spirit. The Holy Spirit talks to my spirit and says, I am a child of God. Uh, that's the assurance that we get. <clears throat> Uh, not looking at ourselves, not looking at what we do, not looking at our uh, hope in us, but our hope in Christ. And so anytime that doubt comes, the answer should be, I trust in you, God. I trust in you. You're, I'm yours. Save me. I'm yours. Save me. Uh, anytime we experience those doubts. Great question. Great question. Anything else? All right. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this image of great judgment that we see. Lord, we see in it your justice and your great mercy towards your people. Your justice being shown in your righteousness being upheld. That no sin will go unaccounted for. That those who stand up and, and puff out their chest against your majesty and seek to set themselves up and rule on high and worship their own image rather than yours, that they will be cast down. And God, we don't see that as a, a gloat. We don't hold it over anyone. We just simply hold out a warning that that day is coming. And Lord, we pray for those who have not yet seen those of our neighbors and our family members and those in this community that are living their lives in full worship of the beast without even knowing it. We pray that your Holy Spirit would work on them and that they would be humbled before your mighty hand before it's too late. God, we thank you for your kindness in Christ and we thank you that we can know, we can know that we are yours because our hearts are humbled before you and we trust in you and you alone. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.